The following sermon is by Dr. Josh Scally, pastor of Emanuel Baptist Church in Raleigh, North Carolina. Please visit us at 2100 Noble Road in Raleigh or on the web at ebcraleigh.com. And now, here's Pastor Josh. Especially wonderful week in our cultural calendar. It is Thanksgiving week, and in this week, most of us look forward to getting together with loved ones and friends, family. We get together and share perhaps even some of the cultural unique particularities we have. My wife growing up from the South, me growing up in the North, we've shared some particularities. She introduced me to sweet potato casserole. Thanks be to God. Thanks be to God for that. And uh, I introduced her to watching the Detroit Lions lose year after year after year. So we we both brought something to the table, I think. Uh, This week is a great week, and it's a week where we get to have conversation. But if you do a quick Google search of having Thanksgiving conversation, most of the hits are pretty negative, actually. I hope you don't do that search, because most people writing on that are very, very afraid of getting together with family and friends. Representative of the kind of articles you would read is the Time Magazine article, How to Have Fun with That Relative Whose Opinion You Can't Stand at Thanksgiving. <laughs> this is written by Carolyn Mell and Jonathan Haidt. I'm familiar with, with Jonathan Haidt, not, not Carolyn Mell. They... In the article, they spend the whole article about how to maybe have a conversation that could be a good one. It, it's sad that they're afraid of that possibility. Now, in today's passage, it is fitting in God's providence that it is Thanksgiving week. Because in today's passage, we have family getting together and having a conversation. In fact, in-laws getting together and having a conversation. And this passage reminds us of a very wonderful truth. One conversation could change someone's life forever. And in today's passage, one conversation changes somebody's life for eternity. And I pray that you'll find great encouragement in this conversation for how the Lord maybe would use you even this week. And so the title of today's sermon is Gospel Conversation. And we're going to be in Exodus 18. And if you have a pew Bible, it's page 70 as we work through it together. And and I know the word gospel is a New Testament word. I know that because I named my daughter Evangeline, which is Latin for gospel. The Greek is euangelion, but it just means to share good news. And in today's passage, we're going to see Moses share good news and do so with his family members and see how the Lord uses that. So we're in Exodus 18. If you have the bulletin this morning, number one is telling others the good news, telling others the good news. Let's meet the people that are in this conversation. And and if you're in God's word, Exodus 18, verse 1, we're reintroduced to Jethro. So look in the Bible. We read Jethro, the priest of Midian, Moses's father-in-law. And I want to press out what this means so that you understand why this would be a somewhat difficult conversation that would take faith. Jethro is a priest of Midian. We were first introduced to this fact in Exodus chapter 2. There we read that the priest of Midian had seven daughters, and of course Moses married one of them. What is a priest of Midian, you might ask? And the answer in short is this, that Jethro would have been a priest of pagan faith. So he would have been a priest of faith not in the Lord, not in Yahweh, who's been introduced all through Exodus, but in a other version of belief. Douglas Stewart, the Old Testament scholar, writes this, Jethro had the title priest of Midian by reason of being a priest or perhaps the leading priest of the Midianites rather than merely one priest among many. Believing in Yahweh, the Lord, 
would have required Jethro to abandon the faith that he had not only held, but led for many years. So for Moses to share the good news with Jethro would have been difficult because Jethro would have had some position in a other kind of religious belief. But further, it would have been difficult because he was Moses' father-in-law. And we all know it can be especially difficult to say important things to family, especially if those things are sensitive topics. It is a God-given gift to address sensitive topics well. I was on the phone this week with one of the members of our church, a dear sister in Christ, who's always fun to talk to on the phone. And she said, uh, you know, Pastor Josh, I hadn't seen you guys in, in some time, and I didn't know you were pregnant. And when I saw Stephanie at the wedding, uh, the, the Taylor wedding, I thought, wow, she looks, she looks different, but better. <laughs> and I thought, wow, that is, that is a real skill to, uh, to define it that way. I could hold public office if I had that ability. So in this text, we'll see Moses having a conversation of, of import and of difficulty, but with a person it would be hard to have that conversation with. Look in verse 1. I just explained the first half of the verse, that he's a priest of some repute and that he's a father-in-law. But there's another thing going on. Look at the end of verse 1. It says that he had heard of all that God had done for Moses and for Israel, his people, how the Lord had brought Israel out of Egypt. You might be thinking, how would Jethro had heard of what had happened in Egypt? He's from the area of Midian, which is on the other side of the Red Sea, really the other side of Mount Sinai. So it's a certain distance. How would he have heard this? And the answer, of course, is that as much as technology has changed, humans haven't changed very much in our ability to share um, what's happening through word of mouth. On Thursday mornings for several months, we've had uh, an opening for people that are available during the day, mainly senior adults in our church, and we've called it Tea and Talk. And I was writing down, when I was trying to workshop the name for this meeting, what are we going to call this thing? I don't really like coffee, so I couldn't say coffee in conversation. So I settled on tea and talk, but a close second place was hot drinks and hot gossip. That's what I almost went with for our title. And the truth is we've always been good at sharing news about the going-ons of people. So there's, there's no question from verse 1 that the account of something like the Red Sea parting 10 mighty miracle plagues being done would have traveled through caravanners, through people traveling. And don't forget, when Moses first met these seven daughters at the well, they recognized him as someone from Egypt, meaning that they had seen people from Egypt and caravanners from Egypt traveled through there. So the news would have traveled. Now, you might think this would make things easier, but I actually think it makes it harder. Here's why I think it makes it harder. Jethro is a priest. He's a father-in-law, but he's heard generally, but not personally about the Lord. Doesn't that make it kind of difficult? When someone has general knowledge, but, but maybe don't, they don't understand personally why this would be life-transforming for you. And so Moses now is about to face his father-in-law with some difficulty in the conversation. The general has to become personal. But if you look in verse 2 and 3, We see how God has been making the general personal to Moses, and we actually learn that through the naming of his sons. Look in verse 2. Now Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, had taken Zipporah, Moses' wife, after he had sent her home. That's recorded for us in Exodus 4. Before Moses goes back to Egypt to ask Pharaoh to let God's people go, he apparently sent Zipporah and his sons 
to stay in Midian with Jethro. And he's, from what we can understand, been gone this entire time. And if you remember, Jethro wouldn't really have known why he went back. Because what Moses told Jethro in chapter 4, verse 17 is, can I please go back to see if my relatives are still alive? He didn't give very much detail about what he was going back for. So now let's pick up in verse 3. Along with her two sons, the name of the one was Gershom, for he said, I've been a sojourner in a foreign land. And the name of the other, Eliezer, for he said, the God of my father was my help and delivered me from the sword of Pharaoh. So Moses named these sons before he went back to Egypt. We know that for sure because in chapter 2, they're born and that's when they're named. So why did he name them these names? He named them these names because that referred to the fact that Moses had survived escaping Egypt himself personally. If you remember, Moses had actually got involved in a fight between an Egyptian and a Hebrew slave. And Moses struck the Egyptian and the Egyptian died. And then Moses fled for his life and found solace in the faraway place of Midian. That's why he named his sons these names. These names then refer to something that had happened in Moses' past. But don't they now take on more meaning? Before he named the sons, the Lord has been my help. The Lord has spared me or delivered me from death. But now those names really mean something because now, over 40 years later, Moses has emerged from Egypt with almost 2 million slaves. Here they are on the other side. And now what was maybe general is surely personal. Moses now knows it's the Lord who saves. Well, we know the conversation parties. The conversation is going to be between Moses, who's a very different man than the Moses who left, and Jethro, his father-in-law, a priest who had general understanding, but not personal understanding of the Lord. But now let's notice the setting for this conversation in verse 5, and the setting's really striking. Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, verse 5, came with his sons and his wife Moses, wife to Moses, in the wilderness, where he was encamped at the mountain of God. Now, what's the mountain of God? Well, it's where it all began. This is Mount Sinai in Exodus 3, where there was a burning bush, and out of the bush, the Lord Yahweh revealed himself to Moses and called him to go. What a perfect setting that where it all began is now where they meet up, now that they've met on the other side. I know scholars debate some of this, but of course, um, I think we are best to understand it this way. Moses is around 40 when he goes to Midian. He's around 80 when he leaves Midian and goes back to Egypt. He leaves his wife and sons there. He's gone in Egypt for what's probably only about a year and a half. And in that year and a half, more has happened than in the other 80 years of his life. In that year and a half, God works 10 plagues. God parts the Red Sea. And Moses comes out a very different man. But none of his family, his father-in-law, his wife, and his sons were not there for that from what we can tell. So now try to picture the scene in your mind's eye. Picture your Zipporah, Moses' wife, or your Gershom or Eliezer, Moses' sons. And you are now walking to a base at a camp where about two million people are there with your husband or your father. They're all there because God, through Moses, has rescued all of these people. You would certainly be in some awe as you near this place. Well, as we come near, we see that Jethro takes the front. So look in verse 6. 
When he sent word to Moses, this is Jethro, letting him know he'd be in the area. I, your father-in-law Jethro, am coming to you with your wife and her two sons with her. And so now the conversation is about to happen. But what happens before the conversation is very important, especially for those of us who are Christians here this morning. Look in verse 7. Moses went out to meet his father-in-law and bowed down and kissed him. And they asked each other of their welfare and went into the tent. I want you to notice in verse 7 that before Moses ever spoke, he first showed great love and respect. So before he ever spoke, he first showed great love and respect. He did three things that are actually a little bit culturally unusual. The first is he went out from his tent and went out to meet Jethro. Haven't you ever seen those revolutionary war movies where someone comes back from the battlefield and they need to meet the lieutenant or the general, some very important figure? The general never leaves the tent to go meet them. They go and they get brought into the tent where the general is because the general is important and he stays where he is and you go to where he is. At this point, humanly speaking, Moses is a pretty big deal, but Moses doesn't act like that. Moses gets up and he gets out of the tent and he goes to where Jethro is. And notice what he does first. He first bows. So he gets up and he leaves the tent and then he bows before he meets Jethro. And then he does a further thing. He embraces him. He kisses him. A culturally normal way to show love and respect. Now this is to a father-in-law who's a pagan priest and who's outside of faith in Yahweh. And let me just encourage all of us here that are Christians today. It is so important that we show love and respect before we speak. It is so important that we show love and respect before we share the good news. Frankly, Christians, we have to admit that sometimes we are more awkward and uncomfortable with non-Christians than we are with Christians. Sometimes even among our own family, we think, well, it's easier and more comfortable when I'm with, you know, that one that's a Christian. But that one that's not a Christian, I don't know how to act. I don't know what to say. Learn from Moses in verse 7. Go out of your way. Go to them. Humble yourself. Love them. Respect them before you ever speak. Sometimes as Christians, if we get that order right, God works powerfully. I read a story of a man in Philadelphia. This man was a businessman. And when he was at work, someone said to him something about Jesus. And the businessman said, you know what? That's exactly what I've been needing. I need Jesus. And the man was gloriously saved through this conversation at work. Within days, he became a Christian. But he knew that telling his wife about that would be difficult. Now, he's a brand new believer, so he didn't know what to do. And so here's what he said. I don't know what to do, so I'm just going to love my wife with the new love I've received from God. And when he did that, she observed the difference almost immediately. God opened her heart, and then he was able to lead her to Christ. We see the same wisdom here in Moses. So believers, respect and love your family members so that they can trust what you're going to tell them is indeed the truth. Now it is the truth, so look in verse 8, the good news that Moses shares. And remember, the last time Moses saw Jethro, he just said to him, uh, can I go check on my relatives? He never told him what he was going back to do. And so Jethro rightly would wonder, what's the rest of the story here? And look at what Moses says in verse 8. Then Moses told his father-in-law, all that the Lord, and if it's not in all caps in your translation, it ought to be because it is the name Yahweh. It's the name that God gave Moses at the burning bush, the personal name of the Lord he knows and trusts. 
So Moses told his father-in-law all that the Lord had done to Pharaoh and to the Egyptians for Israel's sake. So he told of the Lord's salvation through judgment. But notice second, he told of all the hardship that had come upon them in the way. And he told them how the Lord had delivered them. Well, now, of course, the Bible doesn't record every detail because there wouldn't be enough parchment in in the world to record every detail. But in verse 8, it's very likely summarizing everything that happened in chapter 5 through chapter 17. So probably Moses and Jethro sat for a long time. And Moses told all about what happened when he first went back and how he asked Pharaoh to let his people go. And Pharaoh said no. And Pharaoh made things harder. And he told him about the 10 plagues and probably about the recent battle with the Amalekites and how just simply holding up the staff with the help of Aaron and her, God mightily and victoriously rescued God's people. So Jethro probably heard the full orb story that we have gone through in the last number of Sundays. But here's what I want to bring out to you that are believers. I want you to notice that Moses didn't omit all the hardships they endured on the way. Sometimes when we share the gospel, we think we'll only share the highlights. But if you don't share the hardships, you haven't shared the whole truth. And if you don't share the hardships, you haven't shared it in a way that they can tell this has changed their life. You ought to share the parts where you say, you know, God opened my eyes and I started to obey him. And for a while it was miserable. God opened my eyes and I tried to live the right way. And things went really hard for me at work and really hard for me at home. And in fact, I've really struggled, but the Lord has not abandoned me. The Lord has provided for me. The Lord has been with me. See, Moses shared it all. And so ought we. And notice Moses shared it in a way that clearly the victor is the Lord. The Lord delivered us. The Lord provided for us. The Lord rescued us over the Egyptians. And now the response is the one that every believer prays for when we share the good news. Look in verse 9. And Jethro rejoiced. For all the good that the Lord had done to Israel in that he, the Lord, had delivered them out of the hand of the Egyptians. Now in verses 10 through 12, what we are going to see here, I believe, shows that Jethro had received, rested in, and indeed is feasting in the Lord. We might say he became a follower of Yahweh. He put his faith in the Lord. Look in verse 10. Jethro said, blessed be the Lord who has delivered you out of the hand of the Egyptians and out of the hand of Pharaoh and has delivered the people from under the hand of the Egyptians. Now I know that the Lord is greater than all gods because in this affair they dealt arrogantly with the people. If you've been with us on Sundays for the last couple of months, you know how important the word now is. There's all this time where you're praying and it doesn't seem like anything's happening. There's all this frustration and and struggle but then there's this moment where Yahweh says now and when he says now it immediately turns from bitter to sweet from enslaved to free and here from lost to saved Jethro says now because his eyes have been opened what was once general has now become personal a priest of pagans has now become a follower of Yahweh And in verse 12, Jethro does two things that I think are very significant. Look with me in God's word in verse 12. And Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, brought a burnt offering and sacrifices to God. 
And Aaron came with all the elders of Israel to eat bread with Moses, his father-in-law, before God. Notice both things involve God. Something given to God in faith and then a feast enjoyed with God in rest. I think they're both very significant. They show sacrifice and they show joy. So let me explain the first one. Moses or Jethro makes a sacrifice. Where do you think he got that idea? Remember, Moses explained all that the Lord had done when he delivered them. Isn't the key part the Passover lamb? (laughs) How in faith they needed to put the blood of a lamb on all the sides of the post and it would fall to the bottom and they would be covered by the blood of the lamb. And through that and through that alone, through a substitute in their place, God would deliver them, crossing from death to life through the Red Sea. Now, let me take a minute on animal sacrifices because those could easily be confusing. Sacrifices, especially of animals, sound really strange to our 21st century American ears. The only template through which we might even have to think about animal sacrifices could be Greek classics by Homer, the Iliad and the Odyssey, Mesopotamian works like uh, the Epic of Gilgamesh, or more likely pop culture where damsels are thrown to volcanoes in movies. Or perhaps we're even from a works righteousness religion where we have the idea of trying to pacify canonized saints. My family emigrated from Italy, my dad's parents and grandparents. And when they got here, one of the things that I remember being taught by my great uncle was how to pacify dead saints so that I could have safe travel. Now, in the old days, they would do it this way. You would go to the temple, you'd make an offering to Neptune or to Poseidon, and then hopefully your boat wouldn't smash. But in my day, we got in a car that had no business starting up, but we had St. Saint, um, Saint Christopher hanging from the rearview mirror. And so if we said prayers to deceased saints or lit a candle or prayed to the broken wound, perhaps that car would get us where we were supposed to go. Now, none of those descriptions are even close to what the Bible's talking about, and here's the main reason why. All of our template for sacrifices, whether they be animals or candles, assumes that the person we're going to essentially hates us and is mad at us. And if we could somehow pacify them, or cajole them, they would then do something for us. But the Bible actually says the exact opposite. It says God so loved the world that he sent his son. The Bible says God commended his love toward us while we were sinners, Christ died for us. So here's the thing. In the Bible, God is not in need of pacifying that we bring. God loves us and he provides the propitiation. He provides it through his own substitute. His substitute is the perfect lamb, the lamb of God, the lamb without spot, the lamb without blemish. He is known as Jesus. And at the cross, Jesus, the perfect lamb, shows that God is just and he will deal with the damage done by wrongdoers. But God is gracious love and he will bear the cost himself. Again, let me try to explain it in a way that might touch on things that we can understand. Uh, uh, Try to imagine with me for a moment something that hopefully is far-fetched, but imagine you borrow your friend's car without their permission. And then perhaps you are drunk driving, you smash up the car, and you get a ticket. Now there are three biblical concepts that I want to explain what they mean. Atonement, covering, and removal. Atonement, you have an actual debt, you have a ticket covering. You have a smashed car that needs to literally be 
recovered. It needs to be fixed. And removal, you have broken relationship and trust because you didn't ask your friend and it's changed the relationship. But what God has done is he's fulfilled all three on his behalf. It'd be like your friend saying, I'll pay the ticket and justly uphold the law. I'll fix the car and recover the body. And I will trust and build relationship with you on my own initiative. Now, this is what the Lord has done. And he's done so through his son. So in verse 12, don't overlook the first thing that Jethro does. Jethro brings burnt offering and sacrifices to God. I think understanding that the sacrificial lamb is his only hope, a substitute in his place. But then second, notice in verse 12, he came with the Aaron and the elders to eat bread. So Jethro feasted in the presence of the Lord in joy. Two questions then about Jethro that we should ask of ourselves. First, can I say like Jethro, now I know the Lord. Can you say that this morning? Can you say, I know the Lord. And if you can, I think we'll have Jethro's feeling about God, the ability to feast and joy in his presence. Do you know the Lord through faith? Do you have joy in him? And do you rejoice in his presence? So here in Exodus 18, we see that the mission that God initially sent Moses to do has come back to where it started, back to the mountain, back to Mount Sinai. This shows that God keeps his promises. God had told him, I will send you and I will tell you to let my people go and you will. God had even told him in chapter three that he would plunder the Egyptians and he has. God had told him even more. He told them that he would be with him on the way to Canaan. So not only has God promises been fulfilled, but now they're being assured that what's rest, what's left will still be fulfilled. Those promises go back before Moses though. Remember God had originally told Abraham, I will... Bless those who bless you and curse those who curse you. But through you, all the nations of the world will be blessed. Think of how Egypt was blessed when they received Joseph, but was literally cursed when they rejected God's people later. We just saw in chapter 17 how Amalek was cursed when they opposed Israel. But now a Midianite is blessed when he receives the promise. Malachi 1 ends the Old Testament by saying, For from the rising of the sun to the setting of it, my name shall be great among the nations. And this passage shows us what we've seen already in Exodus, that God cares to save all peoples, even as he calls a particular people. Remember in chapter 12, verse 38, they came up out of Israel, not only Israelites, but a mixed multitude. Unless we think God was just against the Amalekites for being Amalekites, here he saves a Midianite regardless of his pagan status. Through the Old Testament, we'll see the Queen of Sheba, Ruth, Naaman, and the Ninevites all follow God. And we might summarize the Old Testament evangelism as come and see what the Lord has done. In the New Testament as the church, we might summarize our evangelism as go and tell what the Lord has done. But in either case, the Lord saves, rescues, and heals any who believe in him. So if you have your handout, number one was telling others the Lord's mighty salvation, the good news. But now number two, listening to others for the Lord's practical wisdom. Now the rest of the 
passage is one that might be more familiar to you. And it's one that I've taught on before. And it does teach us a lot of really helpful principles about organization and structure. But maybe you've never thought about it in context. Maybe you've never thought about Moses listening to Jethro. So I want you to think about it that way. Look in Exodus 18. Look now in God's word in verse 13. And notice it says, the next day. With that in mind, now let's read the passage that might be familiar to you. Moses sat to judge the people, and the people stood around Moses from morning till evening. When Moses' father-in-law saw all that he was doing for the people, he said, What is this that you are doing for the people? Why do you sit alone and all the people stand around you from morning till evening? And Moses said to his father-in-law, Because the people come to me to inquire of God. When they have a dispute, they come to me. And I decide between one person and another, and I make them know the statutes of God and his laws. Moses' father-in-law said to him, What you are doing is not good. You and the people with you will certainly wear yourselves out, for the thing is too heavy for you. You're not able to do it alone. Now obey my voice. I will give you advice, and God be with you. You shall represent the people before God, and bring their cases to God, and you shall warn them about the statutes and the laws, and make them know the way in which they must walk and what they must do. Moreover, look for able men from all the people, men who fear God. How interesting, just one day after moving his faith to him who are trustworthy and hate a bribe and place such men over the people as chiefs of thousands of hundreds of fifties and of tens. And let them judge the people at all times. Every great matter they shall bring to you, but any small matter they shall decide between themselves. So it will be easier for you and they will bear the burden with you. If you do this, and again, this is a one day old believer, God will direct you And you will be able to endure, and all this people will go to their place in peace. Now, there's surely a lot of practical organizational wisdom that we can and should learn from a passage like this that would apply to any place. We've talked about it in our own church, the wisdom of God in the New Testament, explaining the role of elders and how they help support and and give a team to help shepherd the people of God well. And all that's right and good. But I'll be honest with you, it wasn't until this week that I ever thought about this advice given in this context. I never thought about the fact that Moses is listening to his father-in-law, who has been a believer all but about 24 hours. And notice how Moses receives it. Look in verse 24. So Moses listened to the voice of his father-in-law and did all that he had said. Moses chose able men out of the land of Israel and made them heads over the people, chiefs of thousands, hundreds, fifties, and tens, and they judged the people at all times. Any hard case they brought to Moses, any small matter they decided themselves, then Moses let his father-in-law depart, and he went away to his own country. Here's the application that I think God was convicting me about this week. Moses wisely listened. This has been striking to me because Moses, on paper, wouldn't be in a position to listen to someone like Jethro. Remember, Moses is over 80 years old at this point. He's just led the people through 10 incredible plagues, through the Red Sea, and on the other side has returned. They've had bread from manna. They've had the rock that he struck. They've had the staff that he rose to beat the Amalekites. You would think, if anything, Moses should be speaking and Jethro should be listening. Jethro's been a believer for 24 hours. And yet Moses shows us the character of, 
of a true believer. The Bible says in Proverbs 12, verse 15, the way of a fool is right in his own eyes, but a wise man listens to advice. James 1, verse 19, let us beloved brothers be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. Ecclesiastes 4, verse 13, better was a poor wise youth than an old foolish king who no longer knew how to take advice. Remember in Genesis, Joseph's father and brothers wouldn't listen to him because they didn't like the source. But here in Exodus, Moses is willing to listen even to his father-in-law. Let me encourage us today that are Christians, perhaps one of the reasons we're not as effective as we should be at telling the good news is because we're no longer very good listeners to others. But the humility of being willing to listen is one of the great demonstrations that we are, in fact, disciplers, since the word does mean learner. So two big reminders for us, those of us here at Emmanuel, especially Emmanuel. Let me encourage us in two specific ways. Emmanuel, especially this week with your own friends and family at Thanksgiving, let me encourage you, proclaim the good news of the Lord. God may give opportunities, and I want to encourage you to proclaim the excellencies of the Lord. First Peter uses a lot of Exodus language when it then says this, You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. For what purpose? So that we may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. Now remember, Israel was different. Than the church. Israel was mainly a come and see message. We are mainly a go and tell message, but perhaps God will give you both. Haven't you ever had an opportunity where someone asked you something and there was an inherent opportunity to share the good news of the Lord? Perhaps a job interview where you're asked, what would motivate you to work well at our company? Or in your neighborhood, someone might ask, how do you get through this whole parenting thing? Or perhaps someone might say to you, what are you doing this weekend? Or have you read or watched anything lately that was interesting? Those are all come opportunities to now share what the Lord has done. But we also have go opportunities where we show honor, we show respect, we show love, and we listen well so that we can speak well. But let's show us the full fulfillment of what Jethro put his faith in. In chapter 11, or sorry, verse 11 of our chapter, Jethro said, now I know that the Lord is greater than all gods. But we learn the full meaning of that when we get to Acts 4. And Peter says, Jesus, there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men, whereby we must be saved. So who is greater than all gods? What is the one name through which we have salvation? The answer is the name Jesus. Why Jesus? Remember those three terms I gave you. Atoned, covered, removed. At the cross, Jesus is condemned in between criminals. He makes the actual payment that we need to make. Jesus, we read, bleeds for our transgressions so that our sins will be washed white as snow. We're covered by his sacrifice. But further, the breach between us and God, because of our rejection, Jesus has removed we read in 1 Peter 3, verse 18, that the just Jesus suffered for the unjust us so that he might bring us to God. So I encourage you this morning to, like Jethro, say, now, now I know. 
that the Lord is greater than all gods. Put your faith in Jesus Christ, who is your salvation. But if you're here and you are a believer, and you're going into Thanksgiving week, I want to remind you that one conversation might change someone's life for eternity. So with humility and with respect, tell the good news of what the Lord has done and include all the hardships. A good example of this in history is the life of C.T. Studd. He was born in 1860 in Northamptonshire, England, and he attended Eton College, and he was a very, very good cricket player at a time when that was the most lucrative and famous sport that you could really be professional at. When he was in college, his father Edward was a very wealthy man and had always only come to sort of take them out for fun. But Edward, his father, on a whim, attended a a service that D.L. Moody was preaching. This was very unusual for an Anglican because Anglicans only ever came and heard preachers who wore white collars and who were called reverend. (laughs) So to hear D.L. Moody preach was really outside of their comfort zone. But when he heard D.L. Moody preach, Edward was converted. Now, he didn't know what to do, so he went to Eton College, and he picked up his son, C.T., and he took him, not to the theater, which is what they normally did, but he took him to hear D.L. Moody preach. Here's what C.T. Studd later wrote. Before that time, I was used to thinking that religion was just a Sunday thing, like one Sunday's clothes that you put away on Monday morning. We boys were brought up to go to church regularly, but it never amounted to much. But then all at once, I had the fortune to meet a real Christian, and it was my own father. I was not altogether pleased with him. He used to come into my room at night and ask if I was converted. (laughs) C.T. writes, I was brought up in the Church of England, and it was religious, most people thought. I was taken to church. I was baptized at the right day. I was confirmed, and I was admitted to communion. But I didn't know anything about Jesus Christ personally. I knew a little about him. Like you might know a little bit about President Taft, which as an Englishman was really not very much. But I did not know him personally, so there was never a moment in my life where he was mine, even though I didn't doubt that he existed. C.T. Studd wrote, We boys were brought up to go to church regularly, and even though we had this kind of religious practice, it was kind of like having a toothache. (laughs) We were always sorry to have Sunday come and glad when it was Monday morning. (laughs) But then God, with one conversation... Changed everything. His dad had taken him to church. His dad had tried taking him to Moody, but nothing ever seemed to actually change CT. And so one day, his dad arranged events so that a believer came over their home. And he left the room. And the believer was with CT. And the believer looked CT in the face and said, Are you a Christian, young man? Charles, CT, stammered, wasn't sure what to say. And then he quoted to him John 3.16. Hey, don't you know that God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life? Do you believe Jesus died? And C.T. said, yes. Do you believe he died for you? And he was hesitant. Do you believe you could have eternal life? And finally C.T. said, well, no, I don't. And the man said, but if Jesus died and you know that he died and you know that he need him, and he died for you, and he gives eternal life, all you must do is thank him and receive the gift. And amazingly, C.T. wrote, Then I got down on my knees, and I said, Thank you to God. And right then and there, a joy and peace came into my soul, and the Bible, which had been so dry to me, became everything. 
Now, you should read the rest of his life, but I'll give you this cliff note. Over the next six years, he got better and better at cricket, and so the opportunity for him to be a professional, paid athlete with fortune and fame was right there in front of him. But as a new believer, he thought God was working in his heart to go to Africa, and so he decided to go there and become a missionary. He wrote poetry. Let me read a few snippets. Jesus is our message. Jesus, Savior King. Jesus, our sole commander. Jesus is everything. There is no friend like Jesus, so loving, strong, and true. If I had never known his friendship, I don't know what I'd do. No soul in all creation can ever take his place, but I love all others better since I have seen his face. And when deciding to go to Africa, he wrote this, Only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. So you never know what might happen in one conversation. So let's go to the Lord this morning and ask him to move in that way. God, I thank you that we have the opportunity to have conversations with others about the Lord who has wrought a mighty salvation. Perhaps someone here this morning is like C.T. Studd. They believe in God generally. They believe that Jesus died, but they haven't yet realized that Jesus died for them personally, and Jesus loves them and will give them eternal life. And all they do is receive it in faith. Help them this morning, Lord, to have their eyes open through this one conversation, and may they call on the name of the Lord, and may they find Jesus to be sweeter and greater than anything they could have imagined. But Lord, for those of us who know him, we I, I struggle with fear and I struggle with trust and sometimes it's hard to have a simple conversation. I'm afraid of what someone might ask or how they might respond. But Lord, we don't know how they might respond. We just know that the gospel is the power of God to save. So help us just to take a simple opportunity to share the good news, even including the hard things of what Jesus did for me. And Lord, I pray that like Jethro, we would see our own loved ones say, now I know that the Lord is greater than all gods. And may even this week, we be able to come back next Sunday and rejoice in the conversations that we've had and in the ways perhaps that you've already opened people to the name above all names, the only name under heaven whereby we can be saved, the name Jesus. In his name we pray, amen. You've been listening to Josh Scally, pastor of Emanuel Baptist Church in Raleigh, North Carolina. For more information and free access to other messages, go to ebcraleigh.com. That's ebcraleigh.com.